This episode was recorded on October 15th, 2020, less than three weeks before the presidential election in the United States. We plan to release the episode on October 30th. Much will likely have happened between now and then, so much that an update will perhaps be necessary. Early voting in many states has begun. I was watching a news channel a couple of days ago, and they showed long lines to vote in Georgia. Apparently, people were waiting up to 12 hours to cast their ballots. As the camera crew showed the length of the line, I found myself tearing up, praying a prayer of gratitude. I felt as if the people, mostly African-American, were taking on a task that could change the world for the better. I prayed, thank you, God, for these people. I pray that your will of love and grace and healing be done. And then I considered something. There are people who share my faith who are praying earnestly the opposite of what I am praying. There are Christian people who are desperately praying that Donald Trump prevails in this election. Over 80% of white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and some polls indicate that the support from white evangelicals has actually increased since then. And I wonder... How could this possibly be? How did much of evangelicalism get co-opted to become largely committed to one political view? How did evangelicalism become aligned with the prosperity gospel, which is hucksterism, exploitation of the poor for the gain of the rich, used car salesmanship? I say this with apologies to used car salespeople. They deserve greater respect than do con artists selling prosperity gospel. I read an article today about a new political action committee in the United States. They declare that they stand against Donald Trump using their faith. Christians don't need Trump to save them, their new ad reminds viewers. The truth is that Trump needs Christians to save his flailing campaign, they say. Donald Trump has said that Joe Biden will, quote, hurt Christianity and hurt God. Trump's son has said that his dad has saved Christianity. What kind of Christianity is it exactly? that Eric might have in mind. We're going to talk about that today. It's a Christianity that does have a Jesus, but this Jesus looks almost entirely unlike the Jesus of the Gospels. Worship of this Jesus has impacted not only circles of political power in the United States, it's had impact even in churches here in Canada. This Jesus has had a lot to say about matters such as abortion and homosexuality, though the Jesus of the Gospels said nothing about either. This Jesus became aligned with certain ways of seeing the world, politics, the economy. This Jesus would have no problem telling you how to vote. If you were acquainted with a Jesus like this, then you were acquainted with Republican Jesus. We're going to talk about him today. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order! Well, well we're pleased to uh, be here... For a bonus episode. Bonus. We're going to release this as a, as a bonus episode. That's the plan, a few days before the American re- election. And we're joined by a special guest, uh, someone that we just met recently. 
and uh, we're pleased to read his book that's just come out. So I want to introduce to all of us and to those listening, Dr. Anthony Keddy. Dr. Keddy is an assistant professor of early Christian history and literature and a director of undergraduate studies at the University of British Columbia. He joined UBC faculty in 2017. Is that correct? Am I getting that right? That's right. Tony? Yeah. He said we could call him. You said we could call you Tony. So I just, just want to, to make clear. sure our listeners are like, but that's really informal. Um, and uh, you did your studies at Yale University and the University of Texas, among other places. We also noted in uh, your bio that you've participated in archaeological excavations in Italy and Israel. Yes, that's correct. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. I well, first off, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's it's really nice to get to chat with you and especially about these topics. Um, uh, yeah, so I've excavated at a couple of places in Israel uh, uh, briefly, but most of my time in the field has been at the uh, ancient synagogue of uh, Ostia, wow. uh, which is the old port city of Rome. Um, and wow. so this is a synagogue whose dates range from the second to the fifth centuries. And uh, it's it just it's one of the most incredibly, uh, you know, well-preserved. Uh, religious buildings of antiquity, and it's a really interesting site for thinking about uh, the the relations between Jews and Christians in this ancient city, particularly post Constantine, where the Jewish community is is thriving, and it, its architecture is reflecting a a, a sort of um, a competition, if you will, with uh, Christian architecture. So there's a sort of dialogue, an, an interreligious dialogue happening that you can see even in the architectural remains of that uh, site. So it's a lot of fun. I have this, like, I know just from your answer, and we've only spoken a few, couple of few times, we're going to have to have you back if you're willing. There's so I, much I think we so. can there's talk about, right? This is, uh, but but uh, uh, particularly the, today, what we're here to talk with you about is your new book that has just come out um, within the last couple of weeks. Uh, and that book is called Republican Jesus. Uh, it's um, published by the University of California Press, and it's available now, correct? That's correct, okay. yes. So uh, I've read the book. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it, and we're pleased that you've uh, uh, joined us to to talk about this. But before we get kind of dive into the interview, um, sometimes we do a little bit of, you know, Light chat, banter, banter whatever. Um, so you talk about in your book, uh, one of the things you talk about is prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. And so we'll draw some of that out in conversation in a little bit, but, um, probably the, the, uh, the height of prosperity gospel in the United States right now is represented by, uh, Joel Osteen, who, uh, those of us who know the field would say that's a, it's a kind of soft prosperity gospel, your power of positive thinking type stuff mixed in with, mm -hmm. with Christian faith. It becomes kind of, and I was watching, I'm kind of confession here. I was watching Fox news the other night <laughs> and, uh, just probably four or five days ago and an ad came on for a thing called Inspiration Cube. Now, it's, you can look up the ad and, yeah. and see the ad because the visuals are even yeah, better. You should go look at it. It's it's something to but, behold. But we're going to play the ad, the audio for the ad, and then uh, maybe Tony talk with you about this for a couple of minutes. Producer Great. Rick. In today's uncertain times, life can feel overwhelming and leave you struggling for answers. But you can overcome life's challenges, wake up every morning inspired, and looking forward to each day. Introducing the Inspiration Cube, the easy-to-use portable audio system filled with life-changing messages of hope, guidance, and strength from Joel Osteen, one of the world's most inspiring spiritual leaders. You may feel today like you're trapped. 
that is not how your story ends. Some dreams are waking up, hope is waking up, abundance is waking up. With the simple push of a button, remove those negative thoughts with a new message to inspire your day. God is saying to you, you have struggled long enough. Unexpected blessings are coming your way. Over 400 of Joel's greatest inspirations ever assembled, all on this easy-to-use audio listening cube. It's all positive. It's not negative. Our lives are changed completely. Start each day with just a touch and sit back for a powerful message of hope, guidance, and inspiration. The forces that are for you are greater than the forces that are against you. It makes you really energized. God is in control of your life, and boy, have I seen the blessings. He put the hope in my heart. Refuse the negative thoughts that prevent you from reaching your goals and take back control. You can't think negative thoughts and live a positive life. If you'll get your mind going in the right direction, your life will go in the right direction. It was almost like a friend was speaking to me. I'm at peace. My victory's already accounted for. The Inspiration Cube, filled with the best of the best from Joel Osteen for the ultimate collection of the most powerful daily inspirations ever assembled. What God has in your future is much more than you've imagined. Challenge yourself today to be the best of you tomorrow. That's it. Wow. It's a good end. Challenge yourself today to be the best of you tomorrow. It's kind of Jack Handy-ish. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Do, uh, Tony, Dr. Kenny's even too young to remember Jack. You must remember Jack Handy. Uh, not on, really, actually. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you can look it up on <laughs> SNL years ago, Deep Thoughts. Uh, what do we all think about Inspiration Cube? Well, it's available for only thirty nine ninety nine. Don't say that. I mean, people. That's the fear I have, right? That oh, we're not. Our actually listeners promoting are going to rush this. out and buy this. <laughs> I, I'm not super sure that we're going to be, you know, adding too much to that. I'm not feeling confident. I found really interesting too that on the website you can get this inspiration cube without actually paying for it, but instead by making a donation. Uh, which is fascinating uh, because it's part of the, oh, you know, the the kind of uh, deceptive ways that commodification happens um, while hiding, <laughs> hiding it. So you can do a tax exempt donation yeah. to oh these religious so organizations. So it's one of these things you, you do a tax exempt donation, but you'd only get the tax receipt for above the the cost of the thing. Yeah. So your donation yeah. would have to be more than forty dollars. They suggest fifty. Yeah. Really? Of course. <laughs> oh, isn't that oh. something? Now you're from Texas. You're from you and Joel Osteen share uh, something. <laughs> I don't think of myself as sharing much. I, with Joel was say, I don't see a lot of similarities here. <laughs> but um, well, some of the lines in there, right? Oh. Um, refuse negative thoughts that prevent you from reaching your goals. This this idea. We'll talk about it in greater detail later, but that what is preventing you from reaching your goals is negative thoughts, not some systemic thing. That was the thing that bothered me the most, that you can't have a positive life with the negative thoughts. You can't have a positive life with negative thoughts. Some, something yeah. like that. Was, yeah. um, I mean, there, was, there, there were so many, so many things. You can overcome life's challenges. I, wh- what is it that's attractive about this to people, though? It's clearly attractive to a lot of people. There, this is a huge. There, there's church, a market for right? it. Clearly, the biggest is it the biggest church in the United States? I think that it is. Mm-hmm. It's up there. Lakewood is it called or something? Yeah, yeah. and and there's you know so it's the old basketball Rocket arena yeah. mm-hmm. in Houston, um, and so tens of thousands of people go to this, and people here in the Vancouver area uh, follow Joel Osteen. He's not saying negative things. He's not saying hateful things. Yeah. I was going to say right? I didn't think there's anything inherently. Aside from bad theology, right? He's not really saying anything other than 
positive, positive. and you're yeah. I, I like his thing about you know the uh right off the top it's saying that's not how your story ends that's we're not defined by our our adversities and things i mean there's things in there to take out that are feel goody and um right and yeah it's, it's prosperity gospel light you know yeah. it's yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't have some of the um the uh, spiritual warfare elements that you'll get with someone like Paula White Kane, where there's more of this um, neo Pentecostal charismatic mm. fusion with prosperity gospel. Yeah. So that yeah. you know, I mean, you get a little bit of that with Osteen, but not to the same degree. Um, where you know the uh, the, the forces of Satan are everywhere and uh, are you know pretty uh, easy to uh, associate with uh, the Democrats. Right. Yes. Yeah. He's not. Yeah. Osteen is not talking about the devil very much. Yeah, so it allows it allows this apolitical facade, which I think is really interesting, because while being apolitical, the idea that attitudes are more important than facts, which is a line from um, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, who is you know uh, uh, Trump's uh, so-called spiritual father, um, and uh, you know one of the progenitors of uh, we're one one of the most important figures in 20th century prosperity gospel thinking, the author of uh, the Power of Positive Thinking. Um, this idea that attitudes are more important than facts. It it allows for a lot of the post fact post truth right. uh, talk that we get out of Trump. At the same time, it, you know th- this prosperity gospel language, which is so this worldly and so individualistic, it places uh, the emphasis of action and um, will and accountability and responsibility on the individual instead of the government. And right. this is the yeah. key theme that right. links prosperity gospel with other forms of uh, other Republican, uh, you know, endorsed <laughs> forms of uh, Christianity that we see today. This this pitting of the individual and their religious liberty against the government um, so that any forms of, uh, you know, government intervention, whether that be um, taxes to support right. welfare and social safety net programs that help the socially disadvantaged or whether that be um, a, a support, you know, a, a a certain wage regulations for uh, uh, living wages, um, whether it be uh, uh, regulations to avoid privatization, all of this is, uh, you know, is can easily be viewed as, um, you know, as part of this evil apparatus of government. Oh. And so Michelle Bachman <laughs> at the, uh, um, what was it called? Um, Prayer March 2020. Uh, oh, she's still the, doing her thing, hey? Okay. Yeah, this was a few weeks ago. It was the prelude, a well-organized prelude uh, to the uh, announcement of Trump's uh, Supreme Court pick, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, uh, we did, you didn't you yeah. didn't know that during the time, but you know it was pretty clear that she was going to be the pick. And this was organized by Franklin Graham, and the who's who of the Christian right were a part of it. And it actually really got overshadowed in the media by the pick itself. Okay, um, so it didn't get a lot of attention and by the super spreader event and everything. So, but it was, it was right before that. Exactly. And then a, a number of the leaders who were there would go on to the Rose Garden uh, ceremony. That Yeah, exactly. Um, so Franklin Graham leads this apolitical event. Michelle Bachman, um, you know, major Tea Party influencer and, you know, very uh, radically conservative, I would say, um, leader of the Christian right, former congresswoman of Minnesota. She gets, uh, you know, uh, she uh, gets into the commentary uh, section, the, you know, the anchor booth with Mike Huckabee. Oh. And uh, they start talking about, she, you know, government versus God. And she says that people rely on government for everything instead of God. And she specifically references uh, the mandating of masks. Um, And this was, this was before the, uh, you know, attempt to uh, uh, kidnap 
um, yeah. the governor Richard of Michigan, Whitaker. right? And then she goes on to say, so much of our life's controlled by government, but as believers, we know God is our support, our financial support, which is a, a really interesting kind of overlap between the Tea Party or Tea Evangelical yep. um, aversion to big government and prosperity gospel. This is an, where, yeah, yeah. This well, is an amazing thing how they've come this together. This is where the prosperity gospel like changes from from Osteen's presentation into something that's much more insidious. Although I would say that there there's certainly damage to be done in Osteen's you know thing because it, it then becomes your failure if you can't pull yourself up if you can't. You know, yes. to, like because there's this illusion that everybody is actually on an equal playing field and has equal opportunities, and so they can actually succeed if they just try hard enough. But there's there's such an insidiousness then that you go people who legitimately need help, where I would say the church has failed to step up, then they they have no recourse, like they have no place to to seek that from, and then there's this guilt that's put on them by mm. by faith so-called faith leaders, um, that <clears throat> they shouldn't be relying on the government for things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an astounding thing to me. Like for me, growing up in the church, the evangelical church, and then working as a minister for years, um, to, to see that the uh, fairly extreme conservatism in some of these evangelical circles has come together with the prosperity gospel, I, I did not... I mean, I, we can see these trend lines now and these things they share, but um, this is something that's still relatively new to large degree. Um, we've mentioned on the podcast before that, you know, uh, Franklin Graham and, and Paula White Kane come together in Donald Trump's Oval Office. Like that is saying something about what's happening. And for for us, like hosting this podcast, we're kind of coming from, um, you know, pushing away from some of those excesses of evangelicalism, but um, your work, Tony, to, to a large degree from, from outside of some of those, you know, in being embedded in church circles, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're doing something, um, you know, from a more expansive view um, and, and looking at this from the uh, educational perspective and the rest. And it's really interesting to me that you um, not necessarily motivated by all the same things that we're motivated by are asking these same questions because mm-hmm. there's a huge impact upon society and our culture. I often think of by like uh, most friends I have, most, most people in my life don't share my faith. Um, and I think what must they be thinking of what's happening? It would be mm-hmm. astounding to think like, there is this uh, religious kind of takeover <laughs> of of these levers of government and the rest that is I share is scary, yeah. um, and is and and watching the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. I mean, I don't mean to turn her into a two dimensional figure or whatever, but the com- this comment will. Um, she seemed to me to be a character that uh, J.K. Rowling would draw really well because she was so in control. You know, like someone who her 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 ideas of right and wrong are so clear, but she wouldn't comment even on things like, um, you know, voting rights, or right. or yeah. should contraception be banned? Oh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't comment on that. And and you're thinking that the 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 far right uh, conservative have found a just she's their ideal, mm. right? Just yeah. this. Yeah, you know, Rowling might also draw her well because they're both transphobic, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, uh, she is a, an advocate for traditional family values. Um, so-called, yeah. So-called, <laughs> yeah. yep, yep. <laughs> in, in a way that comes across and you can see, you could see her record of, of voting and speaking in favor of them despite attempts to, to you know, 
rub that record clean um, to yes. you know take down any speeches of hers, take down any photos of her involvement in the the people of praise uh, community. Yeah. She is a very very ardent Christian of a particular type. Yes. yes. And just as an aside, it's something I was reading this morning, uh, and I mean it might it might just be uh, coincidence, but uh, uh, Kavanaugh, Chief Justice Roberts, and Barrett uh, all figured in the Bush v. Gore. Um, in 2000 in 2000 um mm. and now 20 years later we have her uh you know about to get on the interesting bench. hey um and uh the the commentary was now showing uh, like charlie kirk speaking at the at the rnc um and they're making the comment that like uh you know in 20 years don't come talking about how he'd be super qualified to be on on the supreme court right, right? like but you go back 20 years and here are these partisan. 20 years and she's only so she was in her 20s at the time yeah right? no it's, she's um, been a she's been a superstar so well we we um so your book uh we yes. uh i was really really grateful to read your book i actually came across it a friend of mine had said that there was a a small article in a local newspaper, the North Shore News here in North Vancouver. And so we reached out to you and you responded right away. And the book is just out. I've ordered it. and It's not even here yet. It still hasn't arrived. Um, but uh, uh, you graciously sent a, a copy that I could read. And um, I really, as I said before, really recommend it. I think you do um, a really even-handed, thoughtful, considerate job of unpacking some of these things. And that's what we want to do today is look at four areas in specific, I, uh, particularly, I mean, um, that I think will help a number of people who listen to us who feel kind of caught. Uh, so particularly these people who have been in evangelical circles and have kind of pushed away a little bit, um, mm-hmm. there can be a sense that, well, we have to think in the following ways. We have to think this, 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 and this, though those things don't line up with what I see in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or with what I feel <laughs> uh, that a loving God would would have us do in the world. And so sometimes people are, have a hard time asking, like, how do we get here? Your book helps us see some of that, how we got mm-hmm. to some of the places where Jesus... Um, and and the book is called Republican Jesus, where Jesus would would have s- political views or whatever that seems so different than than we might think. So, uh, thank so you. thank you for taking the time to write yes. it. It's already having an impact for people like us. We uh, hope that it will continue to. That it'll. Uh, uh, who who did you see as your audience when you when you wrote it? Uh, mainly progressive Christians. I I, I found that uh, uh, progressive Christians and non-Christians, um, people on the left uh, in general, because I, I found that there are a lot of um, good critical explorations of the modern history of the Christian right. Um, and uh, even more so recently, Catherine Stewart, Kristen Kobes, DeMay, right. yeah. uh, there have been a number of awesome books. And le- that's not actually really my area of expertise. I'm a Bible scholar. I work on the nitty gritty of antiquity, really, um, <laughs> of ancient sources and archaeology and material culture. So what, what I was hoping to bring is a more historical approach to the biblical text, because what I often see is um, the biblical text, you know, people on the left will say, Oh, that's anachronistic or, you know, oh, that's BS. Um, or, and what often happens is they'll, uh, do what I call the battle of the verses, which is they'll just cite another verse. It's like, you know, uh, while we have right wing, uh, Christians 
you know, quoting uh, verses in a very particular way that makes it seem, you know, like a prosperity gospel, um, for instance, uh, a gospel of individualism and uh, the pursuit of wealth uh, or, uh, you know, uh, the uh, or opposition towards enemies of some sort, the shield of mm, faith or something like yeah. that. And you, then you'll get the, you know, someone on the left, a Christian leader on the left, respond with, you know, it's it's uh, easier for you know a camel to go through an eye of a yes. needle than the rich man to get into heaven. But deflecting, going to a different verse like that, leaves their interpretation to stand as though it's correct right. or Valid. you know as yeah. neutral. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I wanted to give a resource for you know uh, for trying to contextualize, recontextualize their verses in the historical and literary context that they've been plucked from. Mm -hmm. So I I was hoping that you could give us kind of like a bit of a bird's eye view for our listeners of, of the book. Like we've, we've talked a little bit about what it's about. Um, Why did you write it? What kind of, because you say like you're generally uh, um, historical. So I, I get some of the context that you, you do speak in your book about one particular instance that seems to have been the catalyst. Yeah, <laughs> right. Great. Uh, so the book is an attempt to figure out who Republican Jesus is, where he came from, what he stands for, and then to show um, using whatever historical sources I can, where that uh, portrait of Republican Jesus, where that, that interpretation falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Republican Jesus is the term that I use. It's really a metaphor. Um, and it's set at a, a, a level of resolution, as I like to say, that it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not about a specific denomination or a specific movement like prosperity or um, uh, Pentecostalism or fundamentalism, but is uh, more inclusive of uh, different uh, types of Republican uh, Christian right thinking that we see. Um, and uh, so the the Republican Jesus is the result of about a century of interpretive work, interpretive Mm. work by often corporate funded leaders of the Christian right to create Jesus as a prophet of small government. Um, This is, if if anything, the most important argument of the book is that um, the the, uh, hinge that holds together most Christian right interpretations across the coalition of different brands of Christian right theology that we see with power um, around Trump, it, you know, Trump's court evangelicals today. Um, the, the one thing that is often in common is that Jesus is a prophet of small government, that he is opposed to big government, whether, you know, again, taxes, regulations, um, and public programs and, and anything of that sort. And so I wanted to see where, you know, where that came from, where it originated. So it's, it's, a you know, part of the book is looking at these modern contexts. When mm-hmm. did God-given rights to guns um, yeah. become important? When did abortion and homosexuality and the so-called family rights right. type of interpretations suddenly start to arise? When did the idea, you know, that you can serve God with mammon um, become so popular? Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to track those modern, when those modern well interpretations good. arose. And part of the reason is I started teaching in Canada after, you know, living and, you know, practicing Christianity in the past, though not presently in the U.S., um, you know, I I was very interested to encounter students in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia who viewed evangelicalism, uh, especially those who I self-identified as evangelical, in a different way. 
um, in a way that often shared some of the family values platforms of yeah. the American Christian right that I was familiar with, but not the economic conservatism, or at least not to the same degree. Mm-hmm. And so I started to, you know, do a little bit of research and I found, you know, a, a great book by Lydia Bean called The Politics of Evangelical Identity that actually compares Canadian and American churches. Oh, wow. Um, uh, on either side of the border that are in similar conditions, uh, you know, similar demographic conditions, um, but nevertheless uh, have strikingly different views on certain issues, particularly when it comes to economic conservatism and views of government. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I started to single that out and students started to ask me questions about these (laughs) wild things that people on the, you know, in the American Christian right are, are saying, you know, especially with the immigration stuff that was happening with, um, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions using Romans 13. Oh, wasn't that terrible? Yeah. Being subject to authorities. Yeah. Yeah. Obey the government. And he's saying it. Incredible. Exactly. Yeah. It's so lazy, really. Yes. It's just lazy. To use Romans 13 um, to support government is, again, like we often see, taking it out of context. So this is that passage where, you know, it's be subject to authorities yeah. and, uh, you know, don't resist. The, you know, the authority doesn't bear the sword in vain, which is all fascinating, except it, it ignores the fact that later in that chapter, Paul's talking about love your neighbor. Right. Um, It takes it. It avoids the love your neighbor part and focuses on uh, this earlier uh, section with the be subject to authorities. At the same time, it misses Paul's historical context in which, uh, you know, we we see him talking in First Thessalonians, for instance, about the behavior of the community being, um, you know, being proper in the eyes of outsiders, not calling attention to yourselves. <laughs> and part of this is because Paul thought that the world was going to end within his lifetime. That's right. Yeah. Um, and when, when the world would end, he says in first Corinthians, the rulers and authorities that he's talking about. And I think a very tongue in cheek way in Romans 13 will be destroyed. <laughs> very so, interesting. Yeah. Really well put. Sorry. So, um, why do you think that this book, and I mean, we certainly think it's important in this particular time, but why do you think that this is like important at this specific time in history? Jesus 2020. Oh. We're seeing all of these signs. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing the hashtag on social media. We're uh, hearing it said at uh, prayer march and other type Christian right events and Trump rallies. Jesus 2020. It is a slogan that is, uh, you know, <laughs> supporting a candidate who isn't actually on the ticket, right? <laughs> Jesus isn't on the ticket as far as I know, but he is clearly a dog whistle to the Republican Jesus. Yeah. It, this is a slogan that is being used to, I think, capture, try to capture um, people who are, uh, who are Christian and are um, very much uh, uh they, they might view themselves as conservative Christian or, you know, some, some, somehow in the fold of conservatism. Um, but they are, uh, they are affected mm-hmm. by Trump saying that, you know, Dems are trying to, uh, you know, close your churches permanently mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, things, the, the language that we get of, you know, uh, uh, as you said earlier, um, Trump, you know, Biden hurts God, this polarizing language that puts Jesus and Christianity uh, into the, it it, it makes it seem like Republicans own that, right? Like they own Christianity and they own Jesus. And so I think this is a really 
a really dangerous and unfortunate way of thinking that I uh, have to admit that even within my family, I've seen it mm. have, uh, you know, have an impact. It and is, so yeah. I find it yeah. quite it, it scary. Is, it is tearing apart families, particularly in the United well, States, right? We've and, spoken with multiple people. And you say, in your, you say in your book that um, it, in one sense, it doesn't necessarily matter whether you, you ascribe or identify as, as Christian. Republican Jesus is a problem for everybody that needs to be addressed. Like you, you don't get some sort of buyout because you're not part of right wing or evangelicalism. That there is there is a very large effect from this. Exactly because he's uh, he is being cited. He is being yeah. used to prop up uh, le- uh, legislation constantly, um, but particularly the Supreme Court cases, um, like the you know when it has to do with the uh, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act yeah. and um, uh, questions of uh, you know transgender rights. Yeah. Um, for instance, but also questions about the Affordable Care Act. Again and again, we're seeing some of the same biblical verses um, used to support um, a, a really discriminatory and hateful politics. And so I think it's important that anyone, Christian or not, um, you know, uh, liberal or not, uh, take, you know, try to hold accountable the people who are using these verses to to uh, use them in more response to to interpret the Bible in more responsible ways. Uh, this is yeah. not, So I would, I want to get into four areas. I'll, I'll kind of list what they are, but I have a couple things to run by you first. One is, the first is Jesus is a prophet of small government. Mm-hmm. So kind of this low tax, you know, mm-hmm. fighting Jesus. Um, Jesus as anti, anti-choice and anti-gay. Um, Jesus and the, the Jesus of the prosperity gospel. And then uh, finishing with uh, Jesus and what uh what the republican jesus thinks about uh apocalyptic kind of they would say mm. end times thinking because i would think there's some real interpretive uh work that needs to be done to show that how republican jesus um thinks or speaks or presents in these four areas is is not something that is true to the biblical record yes. um and so we can kind of go through some of those things but i wanted to uh look at a couple of uh terms that you use that I think are really helpful to people. Mm. Um, one is hermeneutics of hate, and the other is um, the garble-omit-patch method that you talk about. So tell us what hermeneutics of hate means as you um, describe it, and then we'll do the, the other garble-omit-patch. So, you know, hermeneutics at, at, its, at a, its most basic level refers to um, the the process of interpretation and recognition of how the process of interpretation works. Um, and one thing that I should say from the get-go is that a problem, uh, a real ethical problem with the way that the Christian right interprets is that they conceal that they are interpreting. They conceal their agency mm-hmm. as interpreters. That is to say, it's very rare to spe- to hear a leader of the Christian right say, I interpret this verse in this way. It's they God just, says this, and the Bible God says this. Or, or it's, Franklin, given. Franklin Graham says, it can't be any more clear than that. You mentioned that in, in your book. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's self-manifest in, in the biblical text. And this doesn't even, it doesn't have to be an inerrancy view. It can be any sort of, uh, you know, anything on the range of forms of uh, inspired text can uh, undergird uh, this way of looking at the, the text uh, in a, in, as very uh, two-dimensional and having a, a self-manifest meaning. And 
what we do see though is the christian right will often use the language of interpretation for what people on the left are doing <laughs> they use that for their opponents right? right and so this is what um a religious studies scholar stephen young refers to as a protective strategy um it is a, a strategy pr to protect the text um as they understand it their interpretation of the text which they're not calling an interpretation but also their own authority as um, uh, divinely sanctioned interpreters well, of you, the text. Yeah, I was going to say, they, they put up this this unassailable wall of going, well, you couldn't possibly say, because I've got either some direct line to God or clearly, like the Bible is very clear on this matter. I heard that a lot yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Bible's absolutely. really clear. And as, as I've taken more time to, to study it myself, I'm like, it seems decidedly less clear than you presented. Right. Absolutely. And so I use hermeneutics of hate as a way to uh, redescribe or to um, scrutinize, uh, critically examine the ways that they are interpreting the text and that their interpretations are often formed in modern contexts that don't actually acknowledge the modern context, that don't acknowledge the uh, agency of the interpreter in their modern social location um, with their own biases and prejudices, um, and how these texts are often used um, to the end of marginalizing uh, people of color, immigrants, uh, yeah. the, the LGBT community, and so on. This is an astounding thing that's happened, and you know, to to use the text in such a way, abuse the text, we would say, and, mm -hmm. and that term is great hermeneutics of hate, to allow you to sanctify this mm -hmm. marginalization, to Absolutely. act as if this is, and, and to a large degree it explains a lot of what we're seeing on Fox News from the religious perspective, right? That this is, mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to ask you, before getting into those areas, um, the four areas, so this is more of a, you know, your opinion. This stuff, I would think, relies on something on, on the part of the, the mass of followers. Hmm. Um, I think at best it relies on ignorance, hmm. right? You, you, people have to remain ignorant, not look at those texts themselves. Allison, like mm -hmm. you're saying, just accept the word of their pastor or whoever's in the pulpit or the leaders or, mm -hmm. um, so it would rely on an ignorance that, wait a minute, I went and studied the Bible myself and it doesn't say what you say that it does. Mm -hmm. Um, or, or is it relying on something worse than ignorance? What do you think? That's a great question. I think it relies on a combination of ignorance and fear, at mm, least. Yeah. Um, I think the, the ignorant side, for sure, I think it, being able to... I've encountered a lot of people on the on the right um, in my personal experiences. So there's a selection bias there, of course, um, who are single-issue voters around pro-life, for instance, but are not even thinking about... It's really not even on their radar all of the ways, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, COVID or immigration policies um, that are putting kids in cells, uh, in, you know, detention cells, that, or whether it's supporting war, uh, preemptive strikes, that are not pro-life. Yeah. Right. Right, of course. You well, know, the pro-birth. Like, and, th and this, is, this isn't surprising to critics, but I do find that a number of people on the Christian, you know, within uh, the, the targeted demographic that the Christian right is trying to, wh whose votes the Christian right is trying to uh, guarantee, uh, pro-life does, uh, you know, it does have a, a meaning that is more comprehensive, um, but they're not looking at the kind of broader issues of, you know, uh, of how the Trump administration is a huge threat to life and will be yes. for generations to come. How do we cut through 
this is, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Going back to your, your hate. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing starts in a violence. Uh, believe this or you're going to hell. You're going to burn. Um, and, and that's just ingrained. That's the beginning of it. You know, you got to accept this or you're going to hell. And then move it forward to just the violence, the violence of $7 an hour, the violence of back alley abortions, the violence that uh, this Republican Jesus is willing to, to you know, perpetrate on people. Um, how do we communicate? How do we cut through, like you're saying, to point out to someone or have them see that, you know, oh, I haven't been pro-life. I've actually just been pro-birth. Um, For me, I think one of the most important things that we can do right now is to amplify the voices of people on the left, especially Christians on the left who are fighting for social justice and who are um, uh, who are interpreting Jesus in ways that are different, uh, that are different and are um, Mm. aimed at, you know, equality and inclusion uh, and to to make these better known because the Christian right is so sensationalist that on in mainstream media and in social media, they tend to consume the news. And uh, what gets sidelined is movements like William Barber's Poor right. People's Campaign. Yeah. Um, and what gets sidelined is the actual faith of Biden and Harris, um, right. who, you yeah. know, at the, the vice presidential <laughs> debate, you know, the, a candidate who is a practicing Baptist has to say, Joe Biden and I are both people of faith. That is shocking that she should have to say that. Um, but it's a response to this this targeting um, by the Christian right that is, you know, uh, making it sound like uh, Democrats are opposed to Christianity and are targeting Christianity and are even demonic. Um, yes. And, you know, yeah. so I think we need, I think we need as much media coverage. I think this is something that anyone can do. I'm, I try to remind myself to yep. do it on, on social media and, yep. and to remind my family to do it, that we can amplify the voices of people on the left because a lot of uh, Christians I think, especially in the middle, if if there is still a middle, uh, they don't they they aren't as aware um, of the diversity of interpretations. This this is actually a, something that I feel like having been a pastor for you know two and a half decades, and I, I, I'm sympathetic to people who hold conservative viewpoints, mm-hmm. to who are even kind of socially conservative in some ways. I don't mean that they hate people or that they're against people, right. but there are these people who um, they don't want to. They, they would see themselves as like falling to the left. You know, the left would be this big, mm-hmm. big negative thing. Um, and so t- to somehow help people who are actually open to loving all people, are actually open to having a more expansive view of these things, but they need to see that that's okay. Well, and that's, that's for, for I know a lot of people that, that take their faith seriously but have felt this dissonance between can I really support this, yeah. they, they need to know that there are actually like theologically sound ways of interpreting things that aren't just this one way. And so I think that that's a great point is because there are so many people that, that I'm still learning about that I'm like, oh, I felt that that seems like what would make sense, but I didn't know that that was a historical, like theological position that somebody took 800 years ago. And I just didn't know because it was never presented to me. The, the, um, yeah, so I, I wanted to go into your garbalomit patch mm-hmm. uh, because I think this is really helpful for some people listening to see how, and then we'll spend a few minutes on each of these four areas, but um, to see the method of interpreting that you, and it has a nice 
mnemonic device to it, obviously. But go ahead and tell us about garble emit patch, how this happens. So garble emit patch, the GOP method, is my admittedly <laughs> kind of silly yeah. way to, to, to remember, uh, to keep in mind. Very some subtle. Of the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it works. Some of the strategies that uh, right-wing interpreters will use. Um, and so garbling the text is, uh, it, it is either in English translation or um, mm. in uh, some gesture of recognition of the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts, uh, limiting the translation, limiting what the meaning of the words could be, mm. or um, interpreting them in a very different way than um, how they would generally well, be Sometimes you can make it the opposite, right? In English, you can make the word opposite than the Greek or the Aramaic or what, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. O- omitting is uh, taking the taking verses, this is the cherry picking part, the taking verses out of, uh, you know, their ancient context, out of their historical context and out of the literary context. But it also refers to something that I see uh, from time to time, which is literally cutting out chunks of verses or chunks of passages that don't fit uh, the uh, aim of interpretation. Um, and then patching is putting a bunch of these quotes together into a framework in which once you've taken them all away from their contexts, they can support any message, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It's like the serial killer letters where they, you know, they, they yeah, pull yeah, out yeah. all of the, uh, you know, all of the le- <laughs> words and letters from the magazines and they put them together and you can write any message from Actually, those. That's a great image. I like that oh, for how this happens, right? That, that, yeah. uh, so uh, Osteen is actually one of my uh, best examples of where you can see garble omitting and patching happening, happening all at the same time. And they don't always, you know, not all of these strategies are always happening at the same time. And it's certainly not only a Republican thing to do. Um, you know, this is something that even right. the gospel writers are doing to some right. degree. Um, but so Osteen, he talks about Jesus uh, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Luke where Jesus enters the Nazareth synagogue and he quotes a pastiche uh, uh, from the uh, book of Isaiah in which it's, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me um, to uh, help the poor and to proclaim, uh, you know, the acceptable year of the Lord. And what Osteen does is he omits from the middle of that passage lines about uh, giving sight to the blind and, uh, and freeing the, uh, the, uh, uh, freeing the captives and helping the oppressed, all things that require government intervention yes. um, or could be viewed as requiring yes. government intervention. So he he keeps the helping the poor and he throws in comforting the hurting, which for him is something that, you know, Jesus is proclaiming that you need to do yourself. You know, the individuals that are pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and and doing this. But he takes out the parts that imply government intervention, and in fact, are referring back to the Jubilee legislation. Um, yes, yeah, like the declare Bible. the year of the yeah. Lord's favor, this year of Jubilee. That, yeah, yeah, forgiveness yeah. of debts and yeah. restoration yes. of property <laughs> yeah. and freeing of slaves. <laughs> all things that you know, we don't really see very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, things that it, Osteen would never uh, support. <laughs> so he conveniently cuts them out. Um, and then he garbles what, you know, what it means to have the Lord's favor, um, for it to be an acceptable year of the Lord, um, instead of it being, you know, the Lord views acceptable that, uh, that, uh, the captives are free, that the incarcerated are free. Um, for instance, he views it, you know, as uh, God has put favor out there for you yeah, and yeah. you Be need inspired to- every morning. So, <laughs> yeah. Tony, question yeah. uh, along these lines. So if, do you see this being used then? Cause it's uh, if 
if you are um, doing what God is asking you to do, if you are, you know, doing the right things, he will favor you. So then does it then work vice versa that people who are rich, people who are in positions of power and authority can claim God's favor on them purely based on whatever social construct or celebrity or whatever that they have and then use that to go, well, I must be doing what God wants me to do because I'm rich. And so therefore, if you were like me, like you should be listening to me. Does that happen? Absolutely. And um, scholars who've studied Paula White Kane's career have actually uh, seen a a progression in the way that she presents herself um, so that she more more overtly um, uh, gestures to and uh, uh, embodies and presents herself as representing wealth and health and victory. Unreal. Yeah, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna wind up pushing you a little bit past the time we yeah, said because this is sorry. fantastic. But I hope that's okay with you. We have these <laughs> four fine, areas. Man. I want you to, if you could, um, talk to us for a minute about Jesus as a prophet of small government. You said this is a hinge on which much of this relies, mm. and yet it's not necessarily the first place people would think who, who are pushing one. against evangelicalism. Yeah. They're thinking more about like homosexuality, uh, abortion, whatever. Yeah. Um, so tell us about Jesus as a prophet about of small government, how Republican Jesus came to be this, and then maybe how that doesn't line up with the Jesus of historical record. Yeah, great. So I push back against uh, the Christian rights uh, insider view of when they came together, um, which is that they came together, you know, with the kind of moral majority and all of that Mm. in uh, the 70s and 80s in response to uh, Roe v. Wade around a family values platform. Um, that's not the only view you get, but that is a, a an, ins- an insider's view that you often encounter of uh, when the Christian right came to coalesce. And so I'm pushing back and saying that we need to pay attention to the period of the New Deal. Um, FDR is really big for me uh, in this book. 1933, FDR's uh, oration, his, uh, his uh, inaugural speech, um, where he is announcing essentially the New Deal policies that he's going to put in place to try to um, help people who ha- have been whose lives have been shattered by the Great Depression and uh, the neoliberal policies of the Hoover administration and previous administrations. Uh, FDR gets into office and this speech, you know, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself is the one liner that everyone knows. But the rest of the speech is talking so much about um, how he's going to drive the uh, the money changers, uh, the big bankers who are the money changers out of the temple of our civilization. Oh my goodness. Um, so he's he's using biblical language um, to talk about uh, the uh, uh, banks, uh, big banks and corporations of his day uh, as the people that Jesus is opposed to. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, and he views government, he's presenting government and these uh, social safety net programs as the resolution to the corruption of big bankers uh, and corporations. And so what starts to happen is the big bankers and corporations fight back. So we've got the, you know, uh, um, corporate lobby groups and um, uh, kind of conventions. Uh, the National Association of Manufacturers um, is literally commissioning ministers um, to fight back against this uh, New Deal Jesus, against this uh, 
sort of social gospel Jesus, mm-hmm. but I think it's a little more mainstream than social gospel, right. uh, FDR's Jesus, but to fight back against this Jesus who is in favor of uh, the social safety net. And uh, so we get James Feefield, who mm-hmm. is uh, a really, really important figure in this period, Reverend James Feefield Jr., who uh, is the he's uh, he was dubbed the apostle to the millionaires and he created what's known as the uh, spiritual mobilization unit uh, organization excuse me um and this organization uh it preached and it it you know had a it created a huge network the televan it's the televangelism mm-hmm. and consumer culture oh, okay. um of the mid 20th century really yeah. um uh, within a christian context and uh, you know so he's he's preaching a jesus whose most important message is thou shalt not steal and stealing is what he presents as what the government is doing by taking taxes yeah. from oh my goodness. you know Sorry. people who are essentially middle class white people and giving them to uh, the lazy poor yeah. um, well, and such, like, to people of color. Yeah, there, there's this this like vilification of of the poor, of the marginalized, of people like getting handouts and stuff, and we we see it in in Canada in you know how you know indigenous populations are talked about that they're just getting handouts for stuff and you just yeah you're just making a lot yeah, of the justification for me. cutting these things yeah. right that the uh, i wanted to just just for almost like a, a glossary because uh, i think that a number of people who are um you know making their way down this way of thinking and and learning in these areas um some of the terms collide into each other right and you you actually outline this well in your book speaking about like classical liberalism mm-hmm. uh, and protestantism that those things come together and and republican jesus kind of comes out of that but you even used the term just a minute ago um, neoliberal mm-hmm. um, so when you're talking about classic liberalism and neoliberalism you mean something different than joe biden is a liberal right. um, explain that to us a little bit so it might help Right. Yeah. I find these terms so frustratingly confusing because neoliberal sounds like new liberals. Um, But it is, in fact, a a reference to um, the kind of revamping of classical liberalism, which is uh, laissez-faire economics. It is um, uh, the idea that the the free market is free to everyone and uh, it it, uh, is self-regulating and anyone can pull themselves can and should pull themselves up by their bootstraps um it is a, a free market capitalism right. so neoliberalism uh, is, is conservative in in the in the way that people would see this as we would understand right. understand right. It, it's so absolutely conservative and yeah. uh, reaganomics um right. and margaret thatcher's um uh, politics are uh, you know reagan and thatcher are viewed as the two mm. uh, kind of leaders of uh of um uh neoliberal thinking in the 20th century and they both used language of freedom a lot which is important because we see that uh, a lot uh, you know today of course uh, always <laughs> but today especially um where freedom is a sort of a uh, a dog whistle to mm-hmm. uh you know free market capitalism which yeah. is uh you know viewed as the antidote to strong state programs to uh, programs like mm. the New Deal. And in fact, in the Cold War period, uh, we, we really have the development of free market capitalism and freedom as um, Christian, uh, the idea, the linking of them yeah. to Christianity so that Christianity and the free market it's are really viewed well, as the antidote well to what they call pagan statism. Right. Um, and Fee Field and some of these they others They actually called it pagan statism? 
pagan wow. statism, which encompasses communism, socialism, yeah. right? All of these, you know, th- these things that we're seeing come up again today, yeah. um, Nazism, fascism, but also liberal Christianity. <laughs> That's like their first target, is, right? Right, yeah. yeah. The McCarthy uh, hearings, uh, you know, the uh, you know anti-communist I hearings. I remember, um, you know, the show Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. So yeah. Patricia Heaton, um, yeah. who was the who was uh, Raymond's wife on that? What was her name? No, no. Anyway, so she's kind of in the Kirk Cameron, I would think, you know. And so she, I saw a thing a couple of weeks ago when when the um, Amy Coney Barrett stuff was starting, um, that she talked about like. There's Christians are being attacked, right? That, and I'm like, wait a minute, I, I'm a Christian. I'm not being attacked. I'm I'm against what you're thinking. You know what I mean? And yet, but it's just like the audacity of this one side to claim that everything they think well, that defines Christianity, everything that yeah. they don't think is big, like is is just this. And it's it's remarkable how how strongly they do that. Sorry, mm-hmm. Allison, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that. Um, no, now I've lost it. Sorry. Um, <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Um, as we're redefining terms, though, um, you you say that Jesus was not, as we understand it today, pro-family. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain that a bit? <laughs> uh, yeah. So the idea of Jesus as a family man. Uh, <laughs> you mean as a single 30-year-old guy? Right. <laughs> Who, who yeah, the- no, single- clearly he's a married fifty-something golfer. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, it, it's it's based on the modern, uh, particularly American, leave it to Beaver style idea mm-hmm. of the nuclear family, which isn't how families were understood in antiquity. For starters, um, families were much broader units that encompassed, um, uh, you know, uh, not only uh, parents and children, but uh, also slaves and different types of dependents. Even land property uh, was viewed as sort of part of the family. So, you know, there's a different cultural context for understanding what family uh, means for starters. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the way that uh, uh, the modern right focuses on Jesus as a family man is often focused on the issues of him being uh, a, anti-choice and him being uh, anti-homosexuality and uh, transgender rights. And so first off, he's, we don't have any Jesus talking about these things. No, there's no record of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. We don't, we don't have it. It's not, it's not in the gospels, certainly not abortion. Um, The word abortion doesn't appear in the Bible. We have a couple of places that can still be useful for thinking about that we, that might be, you know, useful reference points for thinking about when life begins, when a uh, fetus is infused with the Holy Spirit, questions like this. Mm -hmm. But the typical view in Jesus's time that I suspect that Jesus would have shared um, ranged from the gradualist approach of, that's often associated with um, the uh, with Aristotle and certain schools of Greek philosophy. That at some point during gestation, the fetus becomes a human life. It goes through a a, a uh, gradual change. transition yeah. from being more like a plant to more like an animal to more like a human. But it happens over time. Um, and this view is it does appear in some Christian authors uh, in mm-hmm. later centuries. So this might have been the way that he thought uh, about it, or he might have thought about it in uh, what became the rabbinic way, the Jewish rabbinic way of thinking about when life begins, which is at birth with the first breath, yeah. um, with the first yeah. breath uh, is, uh, you know, the, the rabbis actually talk about um, as soon as it comes out, 
as soon as the head comes out, no matter what, you know, whether it comes out first or, you know, whether the head comes out first or uh, is a breech birth, um, that is when uh, life begins. Um, So I think these are the ways that Jesus might have thought about um, uh, when life begins. But honestly, we don't have him talking about it. So we can't, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we, we can't responsibly um, make too much out of what we have uh, in the Gospels. Uh, at the same time, when we talk about uh, sexuality, the verses that so often get used, and Franklin Graham just loves them. Um, the, the clobber uh, verses, verses, as they yeah. say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Six, six Matthew, verses that are used to, yeah. Yeah, Matthew 19, uh, God made the male and female. Mm-hmm. Jesus is uh, talking about the creation stories in Genesis, and he's using this as, uh, Franklin Graham is interpreting this as Jesus's final word on um, uh, marriage must be between a man and a woman, mm-hmm. biblical manhood and womanhood, and uh, that you know, uh, uh, gender is binary, um, right, and biological. Yeah. And what he misses, and again, this is part of this cherry picking, when you read that passage in its argumentative context, in its literary context, Jesus goes on to talk about, he's talking about divorce for starters. Yes. That's the whole the whole context. <laughs> you know, something that the Christian right doesn't isn't as strict on as they right. once were, uh, for starters. But he goes on to talk about three types of sexual minorities. Eunuchs who are eunuchs yeah. from the womb, um, eunuchs who uh, were castrated forcibly, and eunuchs who castrated themselves um, uh, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Um, so these are actually sexual minorities. And what's most important to me here is that eunuchs from the womb uh, an idea that we also have in rabbinic Jewish literature um, from antiquity uh, is it refers to people who uh, were viewed as having some sort of a, a sexual defect, an mm-hmm. undescended testicle, for instance. Um, but these are people who ancients understood. Pliny the Elder calls them a third class of half men. They're viewed as neither male nor female. The ancient, um, the ancient version, uh, and again, uh, you know, y- y- there should be caution here, but of what we would today think of as intersex or androgynous, um, they are they don't fit the types of um, what's understood as uh, male or female in antiquity, and they're viewed as born that way. And that is so important that we have this in Matthew 19. And mm. nevertheless, the verses right before have become the most important verses for fighting transgender rights in Supreme Court cases, um, in uh, the lobbying and preaching around Supreme Court cases. Um, so, you know, the, these are some of the issues that I try to talk about in the book. And you do so really well. It's it's um, I. I wanted to also move into this um, area of prosperity gospel and how this religious conservatism and, uh, you know, what some people used to call, like, you know, name it and claim it, health and wealth, whatever, have have come together politically in the United States recently. Um, Can you tell us about the prosperity gospel, how it contributes to this identity of Republican Jesus, and what, um, in, in your mind and work and thinking, what does salvation mean in terms of prosperity gospel with the Republican Jesus? Yeah. You know, I think the prosperity gospel is one current. Um, and I've tried to think about the Christian right that currently has power under Trump. Um, despite the fact that they constantly claim, yeah, they always say they don't have power. They're being persecuted and yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, but the Christian right, it really is a coalition. And I think there are several currents that have come into it. 
Um, and one of them is the kind of old Graham and Falwell uh, style. Um, uh, and, and there's, you know, even that's a mixed bag. Um, but the Graham and Falwell kind of old religious right. Um, and they're, you know, their children's, uh, their, uh, their children, Franklin Graham, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, another is the T evangelicals, the uh, Christians that have, uh, that associated themselves with the Tea Party movement, mm-hmm. which again is a mixed bag. And then there's the uh, prosperity folks um, for whom uh, the emphasis is on earth. It's on earthly life. It's on getting rewards, not in heaven. Yeah. It's not on the way that you live your life. It's certainly not on um, sin and mm-hmm. atonement and these uh, sort of more traditionally uh, Calvinist um, aspects of uh, Christian theology, but is instead on um, uh you know, praying, uh, if you picture, what is Norman, Norman Vincent Peale uh, says, if you pictureize and prayerize, then you yeah. will actualize. So, you know, if you, uh, if you set your thoughts right yeah. and you pray on it, then you can attain in this world prosperity, which is, a, you know, it is a reflection. You're building the kingdom of God on earth to a certain degree. It, it overlaps with dominionism to a certain degree in that way. Um, but it's a reflection yeah. of the uh, the kingdom of God and, and the rewards that you'll have in heaven. It's just that you can get them early. And you're kind of the author of your own salvation in that. It's Absolutely. Up, it's up to it's you. It's heavy on free will. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a he- and so it, it is really interesting, as you said, to see Franklin Graham and Paula White Kane um, both, you know, at the same event, headlining the same event, this uh, this wow. prayer march. And it's fascinating because prayer is the area. It's the nexus at which they really can connect because prayer is important in any form of Christianity, but it can be emphasized in different ways. So yeah. Franklin Graham will emphasize um prayer to bring about and to, you know, to call on God to intervene, to call on God's intervention. So the emphasis is really more on God um, and repentance to uh, um, get God, you know, to get God's attention. Um, Whereas the prosperity folks like Paula White Kane, their focus is much more on you. You pray. This is what you do to attain rewards. Um, so it's a focus on the individual, um, on the individual Christian, the believer, instead of on God's intervention. So I think you see uh, different uh, angles on uh, prayer uh, that c- come together and uh, you know theologically yeah. in an event like this. But there there are uh, some seams that you can catch. You mentioned in your book that um, Paula White Kane is one of the individuals that's really upset at the idea that Jesus was a refugee. Mm. That you know, because you can't you can't have this kind of degrading view of the poor or immigrants and such. If you know, you've got to yeah. kind of take that plank out, right? You also cite um, a 2017 Washington Post poll that Christians are 2.2 times more likely to blame lack of effort for the poverty of people, and evangelical Christians, white evangelical Christians, are 3.2 times more likely than the rest of the population to basically say if people are poor, it it's their own fault. Uh, this is something that lines up with this prosperity gospel aspect of Republican Jesus, and it's. It, I just think it's like deeply, deeply troubling. Um, yeah. Do you? But there are areas of hope, right? You've mentioned that there are. You mentioned somebody like um, William Barber. Um, William is it William J. Barber, right? The, yeah. Yeah, and and um, so you do see that there are people pushing against this now, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, in that regard. Jack Jenkins has a great book called American Prophet. Jack Jenkins, who's the editor of Religion News Service, he, he's written a book that 
you know, tracks and exposes a lot of the, the efforts of the Christian left, um, especially in uh, lobbying for uh, the Affordable, uh, uh, you know, Affordable Care Act uh, for Obamacare um, that really goes unknown. It really goes unseen. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's why I really think that amplifying and calling attention to the the actions of the religious left, which again, yes. they're not as, they're not as robust. They're not as sensational. Um, they don't have as much money and power right now yeah. as the Christian, right? But the Christian left is, it is active and it is working um, in the States uh, to try to uh, repel the, the hateful politics and policies of the right. Yeah. There's, there's, oh. oh, sorry. There's nothing on the left, like the Alliance defending freedom, right? This right. massive, yeah. you know, heavily uh, funded, um, legal enterprise that supports people like Amy Coney Barrett and others. Sorry, yeah. producer Rick. Well, right. no, no. I, I was I, uh, um, just back to Doctor Kitty talking. We we're talking about um, like taxes are, are are theft, and they they co-opt. Mm-hmm. You know, thou shall not steal. Um, and in the exact same breath, you point out, uh, you know, the average billionaire. You don't make a billion dollars. You you don't come about that without taking. Right. Um, Trump. Is famous for wage theft. Um, and, yeah, he, and he, he's proud of it. He's proud of it. And <laughs> yeah. Christians yeah. defend him instantly. Well, that's just smart. That's how bit, I'm in construction and that's how stuff's done. Um, you know, it's uh, this disconnect. Yeah, um, remarkable. Uh, and then, right, so and then socialism the, for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor. That's right. And then, and then the way the laws are written and protected, uh, wage theft um, is unbelievably hard to 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 combat and and work through the courts but if you were to walk into your employer's you know into your place of business and take twenty dollars out of the register you're in jail that day right Um, and if you steal a candy bar and you happen to not be white uh you could get killed by police in the streets that's right and it'd be justified and it'd be justified and yeah it's the the last main area that i want to talk about i this is really important to me because um coming out of um, pushing away from some evangelicalism, one of the things that I realized as a minister and then someone who did a lot of studies was that a particular understanding of end times, uh, so we would say eschatology, right, how things kind of find a completion, um, an apocalypticism, uh, there's a particular interpretation, again, that Republican Jesus, I think, picks up, which producer Rick kind of referred to it, that I, I've told you before, uh, Tony, that that um, I even used to say, in the pulpit toward the end, and maybe there's a relation there, that the idea that um, you know a small percentage of people are saved in history, and the majority of people, as Rick was saying, like burn forever, um, and you get to be one of the saved ones, and that's what we call good news. That's the good news. <laughs> um, I, I would say, I, I've said to parishioners and others, if, if you can think of something that is worse news than that, I'd, I'd like you to tell me. It's the worst possible news that a few well, of us, a few of us are kind of plucked out, everybody else like... And well, it's, such a, it's such a low view of, of God, because it, it really makes God very inept. Mm. Um, and, and very weak. But this, this, what this is, is what I call a dark es- eschatological frame. That the end of all things, as, I've, as I would describe it, is mostly bad. 
Mostly mm-hmm. what happens is most people are burning forever, which I, I don't believe, by the way. But, but that is what, that's the heart of this belief. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, this, this apocalyptic view is very important for Republican Jesus. And you, I was really happy about this, have a section in your book that speaks about this, the apocalyptic views of Republican Jesus. So let us know, like, what does Republican Jesus have to say about the end of the world and matters similar? This might relate to things like, climate change, environmentalism, but what does Republican Jesus say about the end of things? <laughs> well, first, I think that Republican Jesus's uh, views on uh, the end of the world are, are very much like what you said, this dark eschatology, um, but they're framed so much by uh, the novels, <laughs> by the the kind of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. uh, Christian, uh, Christian kind of uh, book world, right? Um, uh, Jerry Jenkins uh, and Tim LaHaye's um, Left, uh, Behind. Left Behind series. The concept um, of the rapture. That's what that's centered on. Right. Yeah. You've got your rapture scenarios, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, Hal Lindsey, but also Pat Robertson uh, yeah. has reached a lot of people with a, a really dark eschatology. Um, and so as uh, the study of apocalypticism is actually one of my uh, favorite areas uh, of specialization. Um, and I, I work on a lot of Jewish texts from the period of, of Jesus. And uh, one thing that I've noticed is that apocalyptic discourse is always political discourse. Mm, it's always a discourse of political persuasion, which is to say that if you are looking to the end of the world, if you are looking to God to intervene to bring about the end of the world in one way or another, then that often implies a criticism of this world. And the criticism of this world often involves the demonization of a certain set of others, right? A certain set of uh, people who are, you view as, uh, you know, uh, problematic, you view as your opponents. And often there's more than one group of others up, uh, you know, implied in texts and uh, speeches and, and discourses that are apocalyptic. And so one of the things that I found interesting about the way that the Christian right will often use apocalyptic language to, uh, you know, in, in talking about the, the uh, uh, well, it, to, to demonize Muslims, uh, yeah. for instance, but also to talk about, uh, you know, climate change uh, in some cases uh, to, to to um, encourage a type of environmental apathy because the end of the world is coming soon. I think that's actually not as widespread as people think it is, but I right. think that, that that does appear in uh, certain circles. Um, all of this ignores uh, the way that in apocalyptic texts, whether we're looking at Jesus or Paul or the book of Revelation, the great apocalypse at the end of the Bible, there's a critique of empire and imperial exploitation. Yeah. So the book of Revelation is, you know, it's pretty well known that this is viewed as in its original context, being opposed to Rome and to the uh, Roman cult of uh, emperor worship. Um, And so 666 refers to Nero, the emperor Nero, for instance. Um, That being said, there's also an economic aspect Mm. to it where the book of Revelation uh, is it's... uh, it is uh, talking about, it talks about in chapters 13 and 18, um, the way that uh, that Rome uh, has grown in wealth. Alas, alas, uh, you know, the city of uh, Rome has grown great in wealth. And it's done this 
through uh, exploitation of people through trade. It includes a number of different commodities that are traded, particularly in the region of the seven churches uh, in, uh, you know, on the west coast of Turkey, uh, modern Turkey, that this book was originally addressed to. Um, it's, these are coastal uh, major trade hubs um, that are, you know, implicated here. And it's also talking about slaves, the slave trade. So all that's to say, I think in the book of Revelation and in most apocalyptic texts, um, in antiquity, in the Bible, uh, the book of Daniel too, we can find a really robust critique of empire, um, which, you know, it, it, a, a critical approach to it will still recognize that that can be pretty ugly. It's it can still talk, it can still be talking about, um, uh, you know, eternal destruction for uh, certain enemies in a way that, uh, you know, one might not want to endorse today. That being mm-hmm. said, uh, when minority immigrant groups in the mm-hmm. Roman Empire are talking about, you know, their empire as exploiting them. I think that language, that recognition of um, this power, this unjust, corrupt power dynamic is a source of, uh, it could be a source of incredible um, uh, hope and resistance for Christians today. And it has been, especially among liberation currents um, of Christianity. Yeah, there's like, in, in terms of eschatological thinking, it's it's a really kind of basic way to put it. But this, in, in evangelical circles, the idea that, you know, the end is basically, are you going to heaven or hell, right? And 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 again, the, the concept that most people are going to hell and then the constructions of how that's been built through time, you know, in contemporary Christian so-called novels or whatever, but then also, you know, back to Dante's Inferno or things that are built that now people have kind of, uh, equated with the biblical text, which just shouldn't, you know, we, we should know when that's happening at least, right? But so there's that eschatological view that like, is this heaven and hell? There's also, as you would know more than me in scripture, uh, the eschatolo- eschatological view of all things being made new, mm-hmm. that there is this hopefulness, that there is this kind of, and and that I would frame as a as a brighter eschatological view, right? And so again, this is more more helping our listeners and ourselves and others to go, you don't have to think this way, and the, and the biblical text often doesn't support um, this particular way of thinking. So uh, I think, you know, as, as we've gone through these, I think having read your book, we have touched upon some of the major areas in your book. Uh, I've got a list of quotes here from your book that um, we didn't really pull out, which is great, because I think people who are listening should go and pick up your book. Um, and and read it. It is really, really timely. Um, you'll be glad that you did. Uh, it's understandable. I think you do a nice job of explaining terms in there, you know, Pelagianism, uh, Pelagianism and Arminianism and these things that, that matter, um, and, and even um, neoliberalism and the rest. So I'm really, really grateful that, um, that you wrote this, and I hope it gets a, a, a wide acceptance. Um, and, Thank of course, you, my hope is that some, not, not just simply progressive Christians, but that people who would not count themselves a progressive Christian, who, you know, is more on the conservative bent, um, that they, now maybe that's a bit too idealistic and hopeful that they would pick (laughs) this up. The cover, the cover that I've seen, I don't have the book yet, but I've seen a picture of the cover, which is those silhouettes. You do have the book. Oh, you do have it now. Um, How did that cover come about? Because that's a great... (laughs) You know, uh, Leah Chandra at University of California okay. Press uh, designed the cover. I, I was not I consulted in the design. So the last it, image has Jesus with what a, a guns, a, an AR fifteen, semi-automatic. With semi-automatic. Yeah. Did you ever yeah. see that SNL skit with? Um, oh, G, um, 
uh, Jesus, Jesus Unchained. Unchained. Jesus comes out of the tomb and starts oh, to yeah, shoot yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah. And stuff. Oh, it's fantastic, right? It's Republican yeah. Jesus. It's, it's, it's Republican uh, Jesus. So I wanted yeah. to kind of, as we move to end, uh, you do quote Anne Lamott in your book, mm-hmm. um, progressive Christian writer, and she's really funny and writes a lot mm-hmm. of memoir type stuff. And But she says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that he hates all of the same people that you do. Um, you do a really nice job in your book of bringing these important theological um, and political concepts and other concepts, philosophical concepts, but the book also is just a, a really nice read, um, and including some of these things. So um, we're really grateful for your work. Um, yeah. I can see from talking to you that your work matters to you. And I want to tell you that um, having just met you, and it, it matters to people like us too. Um, Thank and you so, so much. there'll, there'll be a few people at least that, that buy your book from this and mm-hmm. then tell others. Um, and I can tell that more than even just the financial, whatever that means, that the bigger picture there is that uh, some of these ideas uh, find a little more currency and that there is some really hopeful fruit for this so yeah. thank you so thank much you so for joining much. us we hope to we'll have to do the tasting part sometime with you because you're local Let's here do it. I can't <laughs> and, and we'll we'll bring you to a you know distillery or somewhere yes, else when we'll we head out your safely ubc way and well, it's been um, a pleasure to have this conversation with yeah, you I've so really great it. thank you so much for your time and uh, blessings in the rest of your work and and uh, thank you for doing it so well so exhaustively thoughtfully means a lot to us take good thank care you. thank you take care Thank you.